0: and Welcome back to Going Underground, broadcasting all around the world from Dubai in the UAE. Economies presided over by Washington and the arguable vassal states of Western Europe fighting the proxy war in Ukraine are arguably in crisis as billions are given away to Zelensky. 40 million in the USA cannot eat tonight without federal aid in the form of food stamps. Germany, the EU's powerhouse, is in recession. And in Britain, debt is more than UK GDP for the first time since 1961. This all while the global south is being beginning to organize a new global architecture away from the dollar and for some even away from a brutal neoliberal model that has impoverished, killed, wounded or displaced hundreds of millions. Joining me now from New York City is award-winning University of Massachusetts at Amherst Professor Jayati Ghosh. Thank you so much, Professor, for uh, coming on. You know, if you tune into to uh, so-called corporate uh, mainstream media in uh, NATO nations, they say the food crisis is, to, is Russia. I mean, it's, it's Russia to blame in Ukraine. The grain deal in the breadbasket of the world, that's a story on the media. Is that the whole story? Uh, or is uh, 783 million hungry tonight? Not about supply.
1: I would say it's not even part of the story. I would say that what's going on, in fact, in the global wheat market and in global grain markets is much more to do with profiteering by large agribusiness and speculation in the financial markets. Because if you look at the patterns of demand and supply and even trade over 2022, you find that there's no real global change. In other words, yes, there was a decline in production in the Ukraine. Not really so much at all in Russia. Global exports have gone up. Global production has gone up, and global demand, which is what is utilisation. The difference between that is around the same. So it's really that the fact of the Ukraine war and the fact that Russia and Ukraine are such large exporters was made into this big thing to terrify everyone and provide a very convenient cover for agribusinesses to raise their prices. It also meant that, especially in the period between February and June 2022, there was a massive increase in financial speculation in product markets, in wheat commodity futures. And this happened in uh, the US, in Chicago. It happened in Paris. The wheat exchange It's the biggest one in Europe. And you find all kinds of financial players, hedge funds, pension funds, getting in big time into these and leaving after a certain point, because they knew that in fact there isn't really a big shortage in supply. And so by September, prices are back to the pre-war levels in the wheat markets, in the futures market. But developing countries face much higher prices because, meanwhile, their currencies have depreciated and they are facing, really, a a major food crisis.
0: I know you're not advocating profiteering, but there is lots of money to be made, as you say, in uh, short-selling and long-selling. But then, why is it that uh, people don't actually know around the world where the prices for bread that they eat uh, come from? I mean, how, how does the media manage to distort the mechanisms of the economy? Is it something to do with the... It, it's the universities. You teach at universities. Is it something to do with the trickle-down economic theory?
1: Well, I wouldn't even call it trickle-down economic theory. You see, it's really... I, I didn't weird.
0: mean trickle-down uh, economics, as it were. I meant the theories are coming down from the academy.
1: Yeah, yes, you're right. The theories are coming down, but I would say that this is not really about theories. It's taking a basic idea that everybody knows, demand and supply, right? The demand, uh, if it rises and supply doesn't change, then prices will go up. Or if supply falls and demand doesn't change, prices will go up, right? That's a basic thing everybody understands. It's taking that and then taking any unexpected events to claim that this is going to dramatically affect one of the two. So this actually happened already. We've been through this particular, we've had this movie script play out already in 2007, 2008, when there was another global food crisis. At that time, everybody said, oh, it's because demand has increased. China and India are growing and they're eating much more. I mean, they basically made out that it was because supply was the same, but there was this sudden increased demand from China and India that causes the prices to go up. But in fact, we know that that didn't happen, that the increasing demand from China and India wasn't there. It was just growing at the same rate it had always grown in the last few years. It wasn't, there wasn't no imbalance. And then they said, oh, but there's a harvest failure in Canada. The Australian wheat crop is affected. So they, they bring out the news as if it's going to be a big, massive impact on global supply. But the thing about something like wheat, it's produced all over the world. So if there's a harvest failure somewhere else, it could be compensated for by an increased production somewhere else. And that's really the story of what's happened even in 2022.
0: Obviously, all these news organisations deny they're being controlled in some Stalinist cabal involving uh, profiteering hedge funds and private uh, wheat uh, companies. I'm
1: not saying they're (laughs) controlled. I'm I'm saying that it's the simple answer which is fed to them including by agribusiness. You know, if you are a reporter looking at the wheat market, of course you will talk to some of the big grain traders. And they will say, oh, my God, it's a mess. You know, I mean, Ukraine is not exporting. It's a disaster. This is going to mean a 20% rise in prices. So they believe it.
0: Well, Russia is saying that... uh uh, it's, uh, the goal of the deal was to head off for the food crisis. It's ready to supply nations free, but uh, the US has given a quarter of a billion dollars extra to Zelensky for loss of, loss of exports. So maybe it wasn't about poor people at all. You've written a letter, or you signed a letter, along with 236 uh, other economists, uh, to UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres and the World Bank boss uh, A.J. Banger. I don't know how well it goes down at the World Bank or the IMF. (laughs) Tell me about this letter that you've signed, co-signed.
1: So this letter, actually, uh, the the immediate context is the fact that the UN is in the process of a mid-term review of the Sustainable Development Goals, Okay, And goal number 10 is reducing inequality. So we have been arguing that it's peculiar that that's the goal that has been marginalized completely. It's really the orphan child of all the SDGs. There is nobody taking that up and emphasizing it. And yet we feel, uh, Professor Joe Stiglitz and I, we were involved in framing the letter. We feel that if you do not actually address inequality, you're not gonna meet any of the other goals. And to address inequality, you have to begin by measuring it properly. So our letter is saying, well, look, one problem with this goal is that you have the wrong measure. The measure is what is called shared prosperity. Love the term, right? Mm-hmm. And it's looking at whether the bottom 40% of the population is growing faster than the average GDP. So if that's the case, then they're saying, oh, yes, fine, shared prosperity and no, not looking at any other inequality indicator but in fact we know in countries that you really have to look at the Gini coefficient you have to look at let's say the palma ratio which is the ratio of the income of the top 10 percent of the population to the bottom 40 percent of the population it gives you a kind of you know the rich versus the poor relative ratio and you have to look at these indicators for not just income but also wealth because we know wealth inequality is exploding. So what we're saying is, listen, you cannot go by an indicator that doesn't tell you the real state of inequality. They are claiming that more than half the countries are showing progress. But if you look at the Gini or you look at the Palmer ratio, only about 20% of the countries are showing progress. In other words, 80% of countries are regressing. They're getting worse on these other indicators.
0: Well, I don't know about you, but I mean, when you go to all these conferences and if they're big uh, management consultants, they're advising uh, developing nations, they're talking not about uh, uh, those kind of coefficients. They're talking about reversing uh, statistical analysis to be talking about absolute poverty and getting away from even relative poverty at all in the face of, uh, I think you probably describe uh, as a catastrophe for the poorest people around the world.
1: Well, yes, you know, I mean, these global consultants who, as you say, are you know rushing around the globe advising countries and multinational institutions are, I would argue, a real bane to any kind of progressive economic ideas. My friend Mariana Matsukato, whom you have interviewed in the past, has written a recent book about this. It's called The Big Con, which is looking at the consulting industry and the role that they play. But I think the real point is this, that, you know, when you get extreme inequalities like this, of course, relative measures are very important, but they eventually also lead to absolute increase uh, in in poverty. And that's what we're seeing today. We are seeing the wealth of the top 10 percent exploding and yet more people in absolute number falling into poverty. And especially after COVID, we've actually seen more hungry people. The number of hungry have increased by more than 120 million according to the FAO's estimation.
0: I mean, I want to get back to those consultants in a second, but you wrote the letter to the uh, World Bank, its partner institution. Obviously, uh, Dominique Strauss-Kahn and Christine Lagarde uh, were IMF managing directors, guilty, uh, Kahn for rape, Lagarde for uh, negligence, uh, actual crimes, uh, although Lagarde's uh, uh, negligence was, uh, she didn't take up a one-year prison sentence. But, you know, as an institution, $155 billion is owed to it. Countries do take the IMF seriously. How do you characterize the IMF? And I don't know whether you want to give advice to any world leaders of developing countries uh, about what to say in a meeting if they have one coming up with an IMF representative to renegotiate their loans.
1: Well, where to start? So, uh, you know, I think it's now fairly clear to most sensible people that these global institutions are no longer fit for purpose. They were created in a very different world with very different geopolitical circumstances, with very different political economy, with very different shares of economic power. And the world has changed very dramatically, but the IMF and the World Bank persist in a structure that is does not represent the world as it is today or the global economy. And that gives disproportionate power to the US and the European countries which they have not used in the most desirable ways. It's all. They're also very clunky institutions. They take forever to do anything useful. They are supposed to provide... The IMF is in charge of providing debt relief. We have a debt crisis. By their own admission, more than 70 countries are in more severe or moderate debt stress they do nothing for years. I mean, the countries that approach them for debt relief, it takes three years before they can get a result. And then that relief is so niggling, it's so uh, stingy that it amounts to, you know, it actually doesn't really help them. So after debt relief, for example, Zambia has just managed an agreement Zambia and Sri Lanka that have recently come to IMF agreements are going to continue to pay 40 to 50% of their budgets on debt relief, on debt servicing. This is after the so-called relief. So you can see how these are institutions that are not really taking the concerns of debtor countries seriously.
0: Professor Jayati Ghosh, I'll stop you there. More from the renowned professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst after this break. (music) Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still here with Professor Jayati Ghosh, professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. We were talking about uh, the IMF and uh, alarming statistics, like 50% of developing countries' entire budget's being paid uh, into debt relief. Ukraine, actually, you said debt the IMF... Well, debt Debt servicing. I mean, you said uh, they're slow. They gave $10 billion to Ukraine uh, quite quickly, arguably. Do you think uh, one psychological em- element of the war uh, is that uh, there don't seem to be any war bonds, any war taxes... Uh, to pay. I mean, previous wars, their populations have get tired of having to pay for wars. There seems to be an unlimited amount of money uh, in uh, Europe and the United States. So where's the money coming from uh, as uh, Europe gives it away and as the United States gives it away?
1: You know, one of the biggest jokes that prevails in so many of these rich countries is that there is no money. We have seen that when they want, they can produce money out of a hat, right? During covid The U.S. spent an additional $30,000 per capita. We're talking trillions of dollars just emerging suddenly to pay for the COVID relief packages. Okay, European Union, very, very large increases. I mean, all the rich countries increased their deficits, additional spending by between 10 to 30 percent of GDP. Okay. By contrast, middle-income countries, low-income countries, they could barely, the middle-income countries spent about 5% of GDP, low-income countries, 2% of GDP. To give you the difference, the US spends $30,000 additionally per person. Low-income countries spent $2 per person additional. That's the kind of difference we are talking about. But the point is that when the rich countries want, they can spend money. They can simply print and produce and spend the money. And they've done that during the pandemic. They've done that for any further stimulus packages. They've done it for the Ukraine war. They've very, very large bills going to a relatively small economy, massive amounts of defense spending going to Ukraine. They've done that to save their own banks and they can work over weekends and be very flexible if it's something like Silicon Valley Bank or Syndicate Bank that is at stake. Suddenly you find no rules hold nothing. The same thing in Europe, when it's uh, Credit Suisse, which is at stake. Suddenly, they will go back on everything, all the regulations that they had declared were in, you know, inviolable, and they will provide re- relief and assistance and come to a deal over a weekend. A country like Ghana, a country like Zambia, a country like all the countries, Chad, that are desperate for debt relief are waiting years and made to jump through endless hoops before they get even a little trickle of some money.
0: Well, if the money is being recycled through arms companies and so on, and it's being printed, why is it that uh, the Bank of England, the Fed, the ECB, don't think, is it, they don't think about inflation? Is inflation part of this? Because why is it, say, food inflation, say the past month or so, in Britain it's 20% food inflation, in India it's only 5%, in China one and a half, South Africa, okay, 11 Brazil, 6%. Why is inflation for food going up in the countries that are uh, at war in Ukraine and not so much for the global south?
1: It's very much to do... This is all retail inflation. This is all the, the money that consumers face in their shops. And that, you know, there's a very long distribution chain. So the real story here is it's not because of what's happening to the global wheat price. It's really about what's happening in that distribution chain. So when I say that, I mean, you know, governments in Italy and France have got after, I think, the the pasta companies or, you know, the companies that produce all of those basic, what they call basic food items, because they are charging excessively high prices, even when there is nothing really in terms of the costs to justify that. So a lot of it has to do with the distribution chain. And okay, well yeah. that's
0: not what you hear on the so-called mainstream media from The economists and The economists that are being at uh, <laughs> interviewed at all. Britain, I should say, add to, uh, it's saying it may have to reverse a lot of these Thatcherite privatisations. I mean, the main biggest water company in uh, London, Thames Water, might have to be nationalised. They've obviously, uh, like uh, in Europe and in the United States, had to nationalise banks after the 2008 crisis. Why is it developing countries are still being advised, and it relates to what the IMF presumably say as part of their conditional uh, IMF uh, uh, loans and loan servicing, why are they still being told to privatize? Even here in the UAE, I mean, every country in the the developing world and emerging economies, those uh, big consultancies are hired and so on to privatize, not democratize.
1: Yes, and in fact, the advanced world is recognizing more and more that you need the public sector, that you need public control over critical institutions, including in finance, but also in a whole range of utilities and other things. However, their big business still wants to make money out of all of these things in the rest of the world. And the reason why it's encouraged or allowed is because it it actually is extremely profitable for global big business, and especially the multinationals based in the US and Europe and Japan and elsewhere. Mm to actually make money from these privatizations. So a lot of this reflects the interests of big business. I'm not being conspiracy theorist. I'm not saying that they are sitting in a back room and saying, oh, let's do this. I'm just saying that the whole process works out in such a way that the major beneficiaries are in fact big business. I want to emphasize though that, you know, people in the rich countries are generally ignorant about all this. I don't think that people would actually be supporting these kinds of things they, they don't realize what's going on they are all fed this idea of private sector efficiency they're also fed the idea that bureaucracies in the global south are bloated and there are all these people sitting around in offices picking their noses and not doing any work and so they feel that yes it's okay to privatize because it will make them more efficient people actually feel this they are not informed about the actual processes that are going on and what it's doing to living standards and actually to survival of ordinary people in in the global majority.
0: I mean, clearly, it's not conspiratorial. I mean, ideologically, it's taught at business schools and at uh, universities to these elites. But why is it that governments in the global south haven't cottoned on to what people in the developed world already know? I mean, I can understand Zelensky selling to BlackRock and JP Morgan, most of Ukraine or all of Ukraine. But why is it the Global South are still talking to Deloitte, EY, KPMG, PwC, the big four, about how to change their entire economies to make them better according to them.
1: You know, governments in the developing world also are very complex creatures. They reflect a particular political economy and often they reflect the interests of their own elites. And sometimes those elites are what we used to in the old days called Comprador, that is their interests are tied up with multinational capital as well. So it's not that the governments are representing really the interests of the people. I would say that's true even in the global north. I mean this whole thing about giving so much power so many subsidies and then power to pharmaceutical companies that produced the vaccines entirely at public cost but then were allowed to charge really prohibitive prices and retain the patents that didn't benefit anyone other than the pharma companies and the finance companies that had invested in them it didn't affect it didn't benefit ordinary people in the in the global north but so governments often operate in ways that don't reflect the interests of their own people.
0: And it's not being transmitted to the people even as they suffer through this.
1: That's right. I've been, I, I'm teaching in the US now. I'm stunned at the ignorance about this, even in a, in a university town in a progressive part of the US. People simply don't know the role that big pharma is playing they live with extraordinary high costs of drugs i mean uh, insulin an essential life saving drug for diabetes is actually uh, prohibitively expensive and you find instances of old people going without it because they can't afford to have a few more than a few doses a month and so on yet all of this is somehow accepted and i find that extraordinary because it's a real lack of knowledge about how governments have created the regulations that will benefit large companies rather than the people.
0: Yeah, I remember one doctor saying that in the developed world things are bad, but developing world there things are bad, but there is hope. I don't know. After having uh, what thirty-five years' experience teaching in India versus teaching in the United States, is it? Similar levels of poverty. I know in India they have the same amount of poverty as the whole of Sub-Saharan Africa put together, but there's hope in the developing world, whereas in the developed world they have it and they they have a crisis of malnutrition and uh, uh, lack of food security without any seeming hope to eradicate it.
1: Well, you know, no, I would disagree. I think the degree of poverty in the developing world and certainly in India, in South Asia, there's nothing to compare in the US. Yes, there is poverty, yes, there is hunger, and there's malnutrition in the US, but the level of destitution that you find in India is way beyond any of that.
0: That's why the US has the SNAP food stamp program to protect the 40 million yes, who can't exactly, afford to eat exactly. tonight then.
1: Yes. So, you know, the U.S. does programs which it objects to other countries doing it. So it it brought a case in the WTO against the Indian National Food Security Act, which is just providing food grain to the poorest of the poor, whereas they have a food stamp program which is WTO compatible simply because they made the WTO rules in a way that would make it compatible. I mean, it's really shocking that we find such egregious examples of... The not pushing policies that they would never apply in their own countries.
0: Of course, there are some who say the WTO is on the way out now. And uh, that era of the WTO from, you can chart the timings from the Seattle riots and uprising to, to now. How tricky will it be for developing countries to de-dollarize, decouple from neoliberalism in Western Europe and the United States? I mean, they can't, they have investments in dollars. They have sovereign wealth funds. Uh, What's the future going to be like as they try and divest themselves of their uh, connection to the United States and Europe and become independent? The future
1: will be messy. The future has got to be extremely messy. Because, as you said, there are so many links. And also because, let's face it, the elites in all of our countries are very closely integrated with the US and Europe. And so they want to keep all those links as well. So it's going to be very complicated and messy, but I would argue the process has already started. I mean, you can't have, I think the Global North and G7 in particular, they don't really realize the extent to which the rest of the world lost faith, lost trust. Uh, The pandemic was a real eye-opener for many countries, especially in Africa, because it was so blatant. Self-interest was so exposed the nationalism in terms of vaccine grabbing, the resistance to having a TRIPS waiver in WTO to allow other countries to produce, the offer of vaccines when they're two weeks before the expiry date so that they can't be used. And then all of that is classified as foreign aid. All of these have been such um, extreme examples of betrayal that there's very little trust. And so therefore, when the U.S. and Europe are surprised that, oh, why isn't everybody supporting us about the Ukraine war? They really shouldn't be, because most countries now feel, well, these are not, these, G7 is not leaders of the world. They're leaders of themselves, and they will only push their own interests. So why should the rest of the world go along with them on everything they want?
0: Well, and Silicon, we will
1: look out for ourselves.
0: Silicon Valley, very powerful. We go out on multiple platforms. Some of them I don't mind, but others even raising the question of profiteering over vaccines and uh, the iniquity of the whole COVID crisis is enough to get one banned in a censored uh, country like the United States or, or in Western Europe. Just quickly uh, on the environment, because they talk a lot about the environment in the EU and in Washington. Uh, we've had Seymour Hershon talking about the Biden administration's destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline, largest ever methane mission. Event uh, man made in history. So uh, is the environment, and let alone the fracked gas now being sent to Europe, how seriously do you think uh, Western countries are taking the, Western elites are taking the uh, environmental crisis ahead of COP28 here in Dubai?
1: You know, I am in despair about the environment. I really feel that the elites across the world, not just in the West, elites across the world are not taking this climate crisis seriously enough. And everybody is persisting with more fossil fuel investment and more fossil fuel subsidies. The direct and indirect subsidies given to fossil fuels were estimated, not by me, by the IMF, right? At about 6 trillion, 5.8 trillion in 2020. Since then, we know they've gone up because of the Ukraine war. So, in fact, we are getting an extraordinary persistence of fossil fuels, which we know are burning the planet. And whatever green investment is coming is really at the margins. It's slight increases, minor pushes. Uh, China is probably the most advanced in pushing towards renewable. But across the world, there is still heavy reliance on fossil fuels. And there are new coal investments which are coming up in many, many countries. So I am really in despair about the lack of any realism. Forget, uh, you know, genuine concern. They just, it's, they're just they just unrealistic about how they are approaching the climate problem.
0: Professor Jayati Ghosh, thank you. Thank you. And that's it for the show. Keep watching Going Underground every Saturday and Monday. You can keep in touch with us via all our social media if it's not censored in your country. And head to our channel, Going Underground TV on Rumble.com, to watch new and old episodes of Going Underground. See you soon.